Once again, right now, it's our privilege to take our time together to turn to God's Word and consider. I'm going to ask you this morning if you have a Bible to join me in Psalm 26. Psalm 26 is a, a very short psalm, and we're going to consider the entirety of it. Let me read this psalm for us and then pray, and we will dig into it together. Psalm 26. Listen as I read God's word. It is a psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep me away with the sinners, nor my life with the bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together again this morning at this time to open up your word, it is with that vivid reality that this is your word, God's word given to us. Lord, we know that it is all profitable, it is all inspired by you, and it is given for our instruction, it is given for our correction, it is given, Lord, so that we might know you, that we might draw near to you, that we might become convicted and corrected in our ways. And so we would ask again, God, as we open your word at this time, please use it in our lives. We pray that you would instruct us, illumine our minds that we might understand your word. Take it beyond just our understanding, Lord, and press it up onto our hearts that indeed we would know and understand and we would uh, just be moved by your spirit from within to live out the calling of your word because you are God and you are worthy. God, I ask once again that you would grant that I would speak your word clearly and faithfully. Give your people ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. When we take up this psalm, it is an interesting one because as you begin reading it, there are things that David is saying here that I think can make us a little bit uncomfortable. It means when you begin to read it, you think, how is he saying that about himself? Now, I want us to, to grasp this, uh, understanding the context of this. There are a number of the Psalms that were written that would be used when the people of Israel would go for their various pilgrimages, when they would come to Jerusalem uh, for certain special events, the Feast of Booths, when they would come for the Passover. They would come from all of the surrounding areas and they would descend upon Jerusalem. And as they reached Jerusalem, uh, during that pilgrimage, it would be a time to come together and a time to worship. And Psalm 26 is considered as one of those kinds of psalms. People are coming together, they're coming for the purpose of gathering and for the purpose of worship. Now I want us to, as we begin to open this up, to look at a few different ideas, and, and I think it will be very, very helpful to us to understand it. Now the opening reading was also helpful if you were looking at that and listening closely, he was speaking about how if God will prove him and if God will try him, that he will not be guilty of great error and great sins. And he wants God to keep him back from presumptuous sins. Because I will say this, uh, when we, you begin reading this, you, you start to think for a moment, wow, David thinks he was perfect. He thinks he was without sin. 
And that's not necessarily the case at this point. He likes to think that he was without great sin and that for the most part he was really committed to living rightly before God. But the first thing that I want to point out for us is you see in this passage a call for investigation. Now, on translation there, the ESV says, vindicate me, O God. If you go to some of the other translations there, they don't say vindicate me, they say judge me, which is a lot less comfortable. I mean, if you or I have the option, do you want to be vindicated or do you want to be judged? See, what we sometimes miss is vindication only happens after judgment. It is look upon who I really am, what I really have done, what I really have said, judge it and prove me to be faithful. So vindication is, isn't just uh, help me to save face in front of others, you know. Uh, prove to others that you do care about me uh, and let them know I'm more important than you are. No, no, no. Vindicate me. Really the idea, if you were to look at this particular word, it's, and, and I guess this is why the translator struggled with it, the idea is, is like judge, but it is such a broad-scoped word in the Hebrew that it really means judge, rule, govern, lead me, O God, and has the idea, with what's implicit following, that he thinks he's been living faithfully. But not only does he say vindicate me or judge me, which look upon what I've done, and then let others know who are saying bad things about me, I've not done those things. But look at verse 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. So between verse 1 and verse 2, we have four different cries or four different calls for investigation. But the scary thing is, who is he asking to investigate him? God. If God investigates you or I, what does he see? Many of us are aware of, because we've looked at this in the past, we're reminded in Psalm 143, verse 2, the psalmist says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, O Lord, for no one living is righteous before you. Whoo! So... There, there is a greater moment of honesty. Now that is where the man is standing there. Enter not into judgment with your servant because no one is righteous before you. Now where he's asking for vindication, where he's asking for proof, he knows that before God he's not without sin. But he is striving his best to be less sinful than those around him. And he's wanting vindication on those who would want to bring him down, who would want to speak ill of him and negatively. Now, anyone who would say that they're without sin, and he is going to say that he walks in blamelessness, he washes his hands in innocence, and it's very strong language. But we must remember what God's Word says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Now, most of us have memorized 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, the verse just before that uh, simply says this, If we say that we have no sin, we lie and deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. All right? So, who's without sin? Yeah, everyone is. Now, David may have been, at times, swelling with a mild sense of superiority. But he would surely be humbled, wouldn't he? Because he would find himself guilty of not only inappropriate gazing, but beyond that to adultery, beyond that to murder, 
And so a man who at one point was thinking, yeah, I'm pretty much better than these people. Let them all know I'm kind of better than them. Is going to find out in the course of time what? Actually, I'm not better than them. And as I look around, there's a lot who are better than me. There's a lot of people who haven't killed somebody. There's a lot of people who haven't committed adultery. That David, who would think, and his commitment is noble, and it's a commitment that we would want to have. But I tell you, though, take heed. The one who thinks he stands, lest he fall. Because we are just people. And when I say we're just people, what's implied in that is we are imperfect sinners. But the grace of God is great. And so what you see, he cries out for God to test him, to prove him. What's interesting also in this, and we don't get it in our translations, it is in the King James here, but still it's, it's worded in a way that's confusing. It, it says this in verse 2, test my heart and my mind. It actually says in the King James, try my reins and my heart. Does that make sense? Reins is an ancient word for kidneys. So it, it actually says, test my kidneys and my inner man. Now the translations have changed because we aren't living in that ancient era. And so generally when we are referring to the seat of our emotions and affections, do we refer to our kidneys? I mean, does anyone look upon their loved one and say, I give you my kidneys. My kidneys entirely belong to you. Do we say that? You know, I love you with all of my kidneys. We don't say that, and I'm not encouraging us to, because it makes no sense these days. But it did make sense in those days to them. Many times, now what's interesting Maybe you'd find it interesting. If you read the Greek translation of the Hebrew, they've already changed it to hearts. Okay? So they've, but because we think of the heart as the seat of our emotions and affections. But even that's just as figurative as the kidneys. You know that, right? The little blood pumper doesn't actually produce our, our emotions and our affections. It all comes from our inner man. He's basically saying, God, test me and look into me at the deepest levels. Not just what I'm doing. Look right into the very core of my being, my motives, why I do what I do, what I actually love and appreciate, and test me. Brothers and sisters, are you ready to say that? Now, now the, what's nice is that we see the same kind of thing over in Psalm chapter 7. It says, it, uh, or Psalm 139. Psalm 139 verse 23 says this. Search me, O God, and we know this one, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous or wicked way in me. And what? Lead me in the way everlasting. So God, you look. Because here's part of the value in this. When we look at ourselves, we will deceive ourselves. We're not that bad. You know, even the bad things I did, my intentions were noble. You know, I, I was trying to be kind. I was trying to be helpful. I was trying to be this and that. You know, that person, yeah, what I did may not have looked nice on the outside, but it was valuable for them to learn a lesson. So I was simply serving their greater good in the future by teaching them a lesson, by yelling at them for cutting me off. Right? And so, so we're able to somehow justify ourselves, but what, what the psalmist is doing here is he's wanting to get rid of the idea of justifying himself. He's saying, God, you look into me. 
Show me the things that are amiss. Show me, the, show me the place where my heart is not right. Show me the place where my minds and affections are straying. And then fix it. Even as the Psalm 119 that was read earlier, keep us from presumptuous sins. I don't, I, I don't want to presume. Look, remember, we know this from Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked? Who can know it? There's an answer to that question. Who can know it? And it's not you. We can deceive ourselves and we can deceive others. But we cannot deceive God. And we, would, we can call out to God. God investigate me. Not so that you would necessarily exonerate me. Because I know I'm not going to stand up to that. But kind of like the psalmist, but with a slightly different spirit. We want to cry out to God for investigation. God, look into the very core of my being, my affections, my heart. So why I do what I do. And show me why I do what I do. Show me the deficiencies. Show me the errors. God, if there are changes I need to make, if there are improvements that I don't even see, Show them to me so that for your glory and your pleasure, I can change them. See, the rest, the, the natural man, and even when people move among themselves, they think, if my conscience is clear, it's good enough. The Apostle Paul says, look, even if my conscience is clear, even if I know nothing against myself, I am not thereby exonerated. I can say I'm fine, but God knows. You know, and a lot of times people will get into discussions, uh, uh, brothers and sisters, husbands, wives, parents, and they, and they can always say to one another, look, I've tried to explain to you what's happening and why I did what I did. God knows. That's right, God knows. Yes, God knows. Yeah, that's right, he does. And, and both of them are convinced that God knows their side is right. Why? Because we evaluate with our limitations. What, what the psalmist is saying is, go beyond my limited sense. Go beyond my deceptive heart. Reveal to me the deceptions that lie even deep within me so that I might be changed and make it right. This wonderful cry for investigation. Um, it says of, in Psalm 7, verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and you, that you may establish the righteous. You who test the mind and the hearts, O oh, righteous God. So it's interesting that the psalmist asks God to do that, whereas at other times he acknowledges this. Whether we ask God to investigate our hearts, whether we, we ask him to be aware of our motives and intentions, whether we ask him to be attentive to what we're doing or not, what's the reality? He already sees everything that we do. He is already keenly aware of everything that is on our hearts. So it's not that God begins the investigative activity as and when we ask. So why is the psalmist asking? He's asking because he thinks that he is living a little more faithfully than some of his companions. Over in Psalm 139, he's asking because he knows that God who does test, tests better than him, and he needs that help to understand himself. So the first thing we see in this passage is a call to investigation, and it's quadrupled four different ways of pleading with God to do a great work. Now, secondly, the second thing we see in Psalm 26 is not only a call for investigation, we see claims of integrity. Now, with the claims of integrity... It's quite strong what he says. First of all, back there in verse 1, he says this. For I have walked in my integrity. So the claims of integrity, claims of integrity are past claims of integrity. If you've seen what I've been doing, it's good. 
Have you seen the way that I've been treating people? The things that I've been avoiding? The things that I've been doing? Solid. That's a pretty strong claim. But he's not done with the strength of his claims. Not only has he been walking in his integrity, but he says this, And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. I mean, no hesitation, no wavering, no compromise. I mean, I guess we could say the idea of trusting in God can become a little trite means most of our money, I believe it still says that, I don't know, we're, we're moving towards a cashless society that's probably going to make the atheist celebrate, because what does our money still say somewhere on there? In God we trust. How many people who use that money believe that? How many of them actually believe in God, let alone trust in God? Hear what the psalmist says is I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. These are high claims. I have walked in integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. These are his claims of integrity. Now, he's not the first or last to claim integrity. Now what I want to note here is this. I don't believe he's necessarily claiming perfection. What he's claiming is a predominantly faithful pattern of living. This is the kind of thing that we should aspire to be also be able to say. Six months from now, a year from now, it would, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say, these last six months, I have walked with integrity. I have trusted the Lord without wavering. Wouldn't that be blessed? Wouldn't it be wonderful to look back after 50 years from now, if we make it that long, and say, I have done these things? That would be fantastic, right? But listen... He's not back. Uh, you, many of you may remember King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a faithful king, but after a period of service, he then got sick. He had a, a diseasing sickness, a wasting away of the feet that was going to end in death. And he pleaded with God. He was told by the prophet Isaiah, you're going to die. And he says this in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 3, as he prays to God. Now, O Lord... Please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Wow. And then it says, and Hezekiah wept bitterly. And God heard his prayer and did what? Gave him 15 more years of life. Now, I ask you this, if after 15 years, he tried it again, is it going to work a second time? No, it's not going to. And the reason why I say it's not going to is that God is the one who is sovereign over our days. When God says 15 years, it's 15 years. But what's interesting, at least within the context of that passage, nobody has given to God a gift that he should be repaid. Okay? So... The faithfulness of this man, Hezekiah, did not mean that he deserved or that God owed him anything, according to the scriptures. So it's important to know that theologically, but understand the practical theology. Even though we don't deserve anything, and even though we are imperfect, God takes note of our efforts to serve him. God is aware of, of our trying to turn away from sin, trying to walk in faithfulness. God takes note of it. God takes pleasure in it. And God may himself even be pleased to reward it. So let, let, as much as we uh, recognize God owes us nothing that we could make demands upon him, we do well to take note of the fact that though he owes us nothing in his grace and mercy, 
He takes note of our service. It pleases him. And he may be pleased to grant blessing in, very, in particular ways. Now, the blessing here was uh, uh, a couple of extra years. Not only that, the scripture says this in Psalm 7 verse 8. Um, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, this is again David, according to my righteousness and according to the t integrity that is within me. The, the recognizing the fact that God is the judge of all is very important because it, we, we don't want to live on presumption. And this is one of the dangers that we have. We being those who live under grace. We being those who are united to Christ. We know that our acceptance with God is what? On, not on the basis of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And so there can at times be such a tendency to glory in what Christ has done for us that we minimize a commitment in trying to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, which is what the New Testament calls us to do. Now, will we ever do it perfectly? Will I ever be worthy of eternal life? No, it's a debt that I could never repay. But because Christ paid it for me, he deserves my all. Even uh, it says this in Psalm 31, verse 14 to 16. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and my persecutors. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. I trust in you. The idea of I trust in you and a trust that's not wavering is, is, is stronger. When everything is good, what can people say? I trust in God. But now when things start to go bad, what might we say? Well, in the early days of problems, I trust in the Lord. As the problems linger, and as the, del the deliverance is delayed, what begins to happen to some? They begin to waver. Does God really love me? Does God really? What does the scripture tell us in Romans chapter 8? What can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? I'm not going to expand that too much because pretty soon we're going to be looking at that on Tuesday nights. But there is absolutely nothing that can separate. Can sword? No. Which means what? Even if somebody is coming at me with a sword... Even if somebody has severed one of my members with a sword. Have they separated? They might separate my arm from the rest of my body. But they have not separated me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Now people might look at me and think, don't you think if God loved him, he'd have let him keep his arm? Don't you think if God loved him, he would have protected him from that loss? Well, that's how people think. But the armless man says, ha, all you got was my arm, but you have not been able to separate me from the love of God. And I would rather enter into the kingdom of heaven with, with blind, lame, with no arms than anything else. You know, you, this person has two arms, but he's using them for wickedness and vileness. I would rather have one or none, but know the saving grace of God. The priorities are all completely changed. Sword, famine, pestilence, peril. It speaks of all kinds of bad things. I have no food. I'm in tremendous poverty. Well, does God love me? What can the child of God say? Yeah, I, you know, I may not have food on my plate, but my food is to do the work of him 
who saved me, to do the work of my father. That's what Jesus answered when the disciples came back to him, when they had gone to get food and he was interacting with the woman at the well. They said, are you hungry? And he said, I have food to eat. His food was to do the work of his father. Even we know further back from the temptation in the wilderness, as the devil was tempting him after 40 days of not eating, the scripture says he was famished. Tempted him to make bread out of stone. And what was Jesus' answer? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so, all right, you know what? I may not have food on my plate, physical food, but I can serve my God with whatever strength he supplies, and I can still take in his word and draw near to him in richness. That person over there they may be absolutely gorging themselves at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Which happens. I've known people to do that. Uh, I actually went to college with a guy. There was, uh, wow. The amount of food that that individual could take in in a single eating. I don't know how that place stayed in business. You know, I could see if I, if I went to that place with that particular friend, I won't say his name in case he ever sees this, I could see the face of the owner change the minute we entered through the door. Because we just lost a little something. Now, they could have all of that and people could fill themselves full and, and maybe I'm starving. Maybe I would just long to have crumbs that would fall from the table. But look, they're not serving God. When they open this up, it means nothing to them. You know? I mean, you've met people like that. And they're like, yeah, uh, yeah I don't really read the Bible. I, I don't really get it. I don't really get anything out of it. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what do you mean you don't get it? You don't any, get anything out of it. You know, by the grace of God, looking into this, studying this, teaching it for years, it is a constant feast. It is full of treasure upon treasure upon treasure. It never gets tiring. What? You look, because look, you at some point, you're going to run out of holes in your belt to loosen. Even if you wore sweatpants or maternity pants, at some point, you're going to be done and you can't keep eating. Now, we can keep going and keep feasting and keep feeding and filling ourselves. And where the other one will begin to weigh them down and make them fat and lose their strength. This, we go from strength to strength to strength. And sisters, we got a better food. So I'm not worried about uh, what we don't necessarily have. And so uh, here, here we, we see here, I want to move be, from the claims of integrity to what I, uh, which points to his past, to a commitment to integrity. And we're going to see how that plays itself out in the present for the psalmist as well as for the future. Now, the first thing we, I want us to see in his commitment to integrity, it, so I like this, it's not enough, I have been faithful. I was. You know, back when I was, I mean, I, and I've met believers, like, back when I was in high school, back when I was in college, back in my 20s, back when my kids were small, we used to go to church all the time. I've met people who would say things like, back when my kids were little, uh, whenever the doors were open, we were there. And, <laughs> and uh, what's changed? Well, yeah, we already did that. I mean, I'm not saying, again, there can be people who are always there when the doors are open and they're there for social purposes. They're there for uh, showy purposes. So, so simply being there doesn't mean necessarily that. And there are practical reasons of life and schedules and demands that mean sometimes not everybody can be there. I get that, so let's not make that the final issue that's involved here. But the reality is this, we can't simply look back. Even though the scripture will oftentimes give examples of the Christian life like running races. Okay? It's not a race like the modern people who run races. 
who can look back on when they won the gold medal, when they set the world record. Many of you may be aware, if you've been watching the news, that recently Usain Bolt ran in his final world championships and got third, <laughs> which is crazy because he has not lost a race in like 10 years. And in his final uh, going away race, he ran the slowest that he has in ages, and he got third place. In the final leg of the relay of his absolute final race of his career, he fell down and got injured. So, I mean, this is his, his going away, last moment legacy. But he's always going to be able to, to, can he get up from there and say, I remember five years ago when I set the world record. I remember when, yeah. That's challenging because as time goes by, people still say things. I mean, right now, even uh, young guys just being drafted out of college are being asked, do you think that you could beat Michael Jordan one-on-one? -on -one? And then they're commenting, well, yeah, now he's in his 50s. He's pretty slow. I think I could take him, you know, which is probably hard for Michael on this side to hear. And he's probably saying, no, I could still take you. But there's a certain point at which they are going to be able to take him. And he can only talk about how he was. There, there is a peak and there is a drop off. We all know that with all kinds of athletics and all kinds of skill levels, I don't think we've seen many 70-year-old sprinters or 60-year-old gymnasts in the Olympics. Have we? Do we want to? I mean, we, we haven't seen that. Why? Because they've declined. But, but think about the nature of the Christian life. It's not like that. The scripture will say, even unto old age and even unto gray hair. There can be this continual growth, continual strength. Yeah, it could be even a reference to no hair. Uh, it, it, those are figurative references to, to age. We can go from strength to strength, from faith to faith, so that in, in the last days of our lives, even though our outward bodies may be wasting away, the scripture says inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So that the world would say, why do you still have joy? And we say, well, the joy of the Lord is my strength. But you don't have any strength left. Not in my body. But that's okay. This body is only temporary. And I'm going to get a new one that's permanent. And that's going to have all of the vitality and permanence of the spirit that God has placed within me. And so we see this commitment to integrity in the present. And then look at me with me at verse 3, and we're going to start to zip through this a little quick. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness or in your truth. The first thing about his commitment to integrity, it's interesting to note, in order to be really committed to living with integrity, it isn't first and foremost looking at me. Am I doing right? Am I do, saying the right things? Am I thinking the right things? No. Step one to really being able to live and walk with integrity and godliness is looking at Him. Not looking at us, but looking at Him. I have walked. It, it, it's, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness, or some translations are, I walk in your truth. The standard is not within. The standard is given. I walk in your truth. It is your steadfastness. It is your faithfulness. It is your excellencies. It is your perfections that drive me on. So it's got to be more than that. It's not, yeah, I'm kind of winning this race. So I can uh, pull off a little bit. Is that what we do? No, you run as if to win that race. But the reality is this. You're, you're not just looking at, at, am I ahead of others? You're like, 
Oh my, his steadfast love and faithfulness is still so much better than mine. I got to run even faster. I got to find another level. I got to find another gear. Because it is a, a, a present integrity will first and foremost be God-focused. And it will be evidenced in our lives. First of all, we see here in what I don't do. Verse 4 says this, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites or dissemblers. Uh, I, the, the idea is this, or I do not sit with men of vain, who are vain persons. People whose lives are emptiness. People who don't have the, the, the rich value of truth. I just can't find myself as a close companion of those who don't know what really has value. I see the things that they value, and you know what? All of that just fades away. All of that is so fleeting. All of that is so temporary. Uh, all of that pleasure is so weak. I just can't get into it. And or it says, uh, and I do not consort with hypocrites. Or dissemblers, those who are in falsehood. Here's the idea. During the week, you would not know this person from the world. But in chapel, eyes closed, hands raised. I mean, if you were to take a picture in chapel or take a picture in church, you'd be like, wow, a picture of piety. But you take a picture on Friday night, they may be somewhere else with their eyes closed and hands raised doing something totally different. Isn't it right? Hey, you, we've all probably known people like that who, who in one day, and maybe at times we've been that way, uh, no different from the world, but when we're in certain environments, when we've got on the right clothes and when we're in the right place or holding the right book, we are godly. He says, I don't want anything to do with these fake people. It's just a bunch of junk. I, you know, I don't want to be with them. I don't want to be like them. This is what I will not do. And then second, he says, what I don't like or what I hate, verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. That's not going to be my place. That's not what I'm going to be about. I'm not going to live there. I'm not going to hang out there. I'm not going to be there. That's a commitment to present integrity. Goes on and it, from those, those negatives to what I do, the positives, what I do Verse 6 and 7, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. Now, when I say that, it's kind of a weird phrase. And so let me modernize the concept here. Unlike those who are being hypocritical, who at times are living so wickedly, and then all of a sudden they pre pretend to be so pious. I don't do that. The way that I'm preparing, the way that I'm living, it's using priestly language, which is foreign to us. And when the priest was preparing himself to do the works that he would do, there were certain cleansing and purifying processes that he needs to do. And what the psalmist is actually saying here is, look, I'm living in such a way that I'm in preparation to come into your presence. I'm doing those things in advance that I'm supposed to do to be fit to be involved in the service and in the ministry. That's the priestly language that's woven in here. So in, unlike the false people who are, again, if you go forward to the, the phrasing of hypocrite from a New Testament perspective, the idea of a hypocrite in the Greek was someone who would wear a mask. Hypocrite wasn't technically only a bad thing. It was an actor who wore a mask. And so the same actor could put on a one-man show with a pocket full of masks. 
and right now he's a lady, and right now he's the bad guy, and right now he's the hero. And, and, and each mask, he would change how he's acting and how he's talking, and, and it would all change just in an instant with the mask. But it was all fake. None of those were who he really was. They were all pretend. What he's saying is this, no, I wash my hands in innocence. I, 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 I'm trying to live in a way that is fitting for the service that I'm going to be involved with. And, and I'm going to be actively involved in that service, which is to go around your altar. And that's interesting to note because this is, this is the king, and he's not saying that I, I somehow think I'm above the res- what the others are going to be doing, that I'm separate, that I've exceeded that, but the simple, hum- humble service that is going to be rendered. And then not only what I do, but also what I love. Psalm 26, verse 8 says this, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I love it. I mean, it's it's an interesting thought because you probably met people. You probably may have talked to people this week and and maybe said to them, are you going to church on Sunday? Mm, Don't know. And why not? You know, I don't really enjoy i want to go hiking on sunday i'm gonna you know there's gonna be a concert on saturday night i'm gonna be tired there's gonna be a game on people have a lot of excuses because they love other things more than they love the gathering of the saints the psalmist here is recognizing and this is a description of integrity he's not just he's not just saying i'm gonna go i'm gonna do it i know i should i'm gonna do it no he says I love that place. That should be where we're all at. You know, and and, and we might, and so here's what happens. People end up going here. Nee, don't love that place. So they go to this one. Mm, don't love the music. To this one, eh, didn't love. And, the, and they're shopping all around looking for the things that they love. But maybe the standard that they're using to evaluate it is no different than joining any other club or, or, or which place I'm going to gather with people or where I'm going to hang out, which coffee shop I'm going to frequent. Maybe the standard's no different than that. It ought to be different than that. What, what ought to draw us together is that richness of the word. What draws us and longs for us to be together is I want to be there where I'm with God's people and where God meets with his people. But we can't miss that. There's a, there's a beautiful picture where, where we, we know that God is everywhere, omnipresent. We know that Christ lives in us, but the scriptures still remind us that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is in the midst of us. There are special expressions of God's presence that exist in certain circumstances that are special, that are exceeding. And so uh, we come here to hear a sermon. We come here to sing God's praises. We come here to fellowship with the saints. But don't forget... We come here to draw near to God. And remembering the promise of James 4, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That's a reality. So it can't be just for preaching or just for songs. God has to be at the the heart of our heart, if that makes sense. And so... What we love, I love the habitation of your house where the presence of your glory dwells. What draws me there, what what I long for, what I love, is there is a real sense of, of who you are and who you would have us to be and a power of your presence and a genuineness of your work in that place. And also, we see this commitment to integrity for the future. Look at verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk. In my integrity. He began. I have walked. 
And now looking forward, I shall walk in my integrity. But I, what, what's interesting to notice about this is I shall walk in my integrity. Then what does he say? Redeem me and be gracious to me. Now, why, I ask you, would someone who has been nothing but integrity need to be redeemed? Why would he need God's grace? Actually, the, the phrase here for grace is, is if, you're, if you look at it in the King James, it says, be merciful to me. It is, show compassion to me, show pity to me, be gracious and merciful to me. Well, why would he need that if he's already been perfect? Because he knows he hasn't been. His commitment, his, he, he's saying, I have tried to be as faithful as I can. And I'm going to keep on trying to be as faithful as I can. But in all of that trying to be faithful, there's still going to be some failing. But, redeem me, God. Be gracious to me, God. It, 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 isn't that the richness? When we stumble which to some extent we are sure to do. Does he throw us away? Does he cast us off? Or does he say, confess your sins because he is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so when we've stumbled, when we've, when we've made that error, you know what we can say? Again, Redeem me, be gracious to me, strengthen me, and God, I will walk in integrity. I'll do it. This is what I'm going to do. Now, it's important for us to, to get this. Um, it's not something that happens only after the fact. Uh, in Job 31.1, it's important to note, Job himself walked in blamelessness more than any of his day, right? The scripture says there was no one like him. Well, one of the reasons why is because with those particular temptations that, that are sure to come, he didn't simply say this, whatever temptation comes, I'll figure out what I'm going to do when the time comes. No. In advance, he, he's probably seen, even from childhood, men falling into adultery, men falling into compromise. And so he says in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze, inappropriately, on a virgin? So he, he's decided in advance, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look away and not look longingly because that's dangerous. I'm not going to be the guy who says, I'm only looking. No, no, no. That, that, he says, I've decided in advance, I'm not going to look. Because that's how it starts. And I'm not even going to get started. The same thing Daniel, when he and that group were taken away. And they were taken into the king's court. Remember what it says in verse 8 of Daniel 1. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He resolved it when? Not when they put the food on the table. If you haven't made a decision before they put the food on the table, what happens when the food's set on the table? Oh, man. Here's my thought. I'm going to just eat a little bit. I'm not going to get, like, all into it and caught up in it. I'm just going to eat a little bit. Right? Isn't that what you say if that delicious food is in front of you? But if you've already decided, I'm not going to have a part in it. He resolved in advance, and so when the time come, he knew what he was going to do. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, this. There are going to be very few surprising sins in your entire life. I can dare say almost every sin you've ever committed, you are not the first. And every sin that you're ultimately going to commit, you will not be the first. They're all really common. And all of the big ones, you look around and it happens, you know, among priests and among presidents and, and all kinds of things. So you can already know in advance 
what are the temptations of my era? What are the temptations of my age? What are the temptations of my companions? What are the, what are the thing, What are they? And what am I going to do when they come? When the group of vain persons, people without the value of Christ, say that they're going to go here and do this and do that, what am I going to do? Am I going to go with them? Am I going to sit with them? Or am I going to not consort with them? Decisions need to be made in advance. Decisions made in the moment, in the heat of passion, in, 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 in the fire of affliction and temptation, that's a tough time. That's why you've got to, you've got to know exactly what you're going to do when that happens. What do you do? There are schools will have, uh, what do we do if there's a lockdown? And everyone's supposed to know what to do. What do we do if there's a fire? And they have fire drills. And everyone's supposed to go to a particular place. And why do you have those drills? So that when it happens, you know what to do. You know where to go. You know what the steps are. And if you know those things, it's a lot easier. I mean, recently when uh, 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 a young lady, was having a seizure here in the church. If, if you don't know all the steps and all the things to do and you have no experience with it, then what do you do in that moment? I would be at an utter loss. Uh, um, what do I do? Uh, uh, pull. You know, <laughs> I, I would have no idea what to do and you don't know what the steps are, but someone who's experienced, what will they do? All right. Let's do this. All right, sit down, do this, and they walk you through the steps. And the same event can cause a person who, who has no plan to panic and a person who has a plan to begin to do what? Walk through the steps of that plan. People, if we're going to be godly people, you know what we've got to have? A godly plan. And the last, last thing we see in this passage, he, he pleads for some considered insights. In verse 9, he basically says, Treat me differently. Do not sweep my soul away with the sinners, nor my life with the bloodthirsty, in whose hands are evil devices and right hand bribes. Don't sweep me away with them. I want to be different from them. I want to be distinct. Treat me differently. Additionally, he says, not only treat me differently, but in a sense, make me different, where he says, redeem me, be gracious to me, have pity on me. And then he ends with this simple thought. And we end with the same thought. Verse 12. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. All right. It is in the gathering of God's people. It is in a commitment to integrity. It is in a God-centered focus that it says, my, I stand on even ground. I stand on level ground. The simple idea is that I don't lose my balance. I'm safe. I'm stable. I'm protected. Theoretically, if you're standing on even ground, I mean, you would think right now, like this, the likelihood of my falling is less. Whereas if I'm walking... <laughs> on uneven ground, then I could potentially stumble. And so, so the idea is this, how am I going to maintain that, that position of safety, that, petition, that position of security? Well, I do it with your people. Two things are going to be a part of me. I'm going to be with your people, and I'm going to be full of your praises. My feet are on safe ground. Level ground in the great assembly, and I will bless the Lord. So simple thoughts that we've seen in this passage. One, a call for investigation, that God would reveal to us the things that are in our own hearts and that our own lives that might not be pleasing in His sight so that we can, by His grace, correct them. Secondly, we saw claims of integrity. He was looking at the past, but the past was not enough. It's good to have tried to be faithful, but there's also an ongoing commitment to integrity, both in the present 
as well as in the future. He's going to live without hypocrisy. He's going to live without compromise. He's going to live without joining with this error. And in the considered insights, he pleads with God, God, I'm going to be different. Treat me different. Make me different. Bring me among your distinct people and keep me safe and secure while I sing your praises. All right, let's pray. Lord, we do um, praise you and I would just pray for uh, these ones who are here and gathered that even if uh, as they might later today or throughout this week take up and again read this psalm for themselves. Lord it would be my desire that as they read this psalm now with this expansion that it would come to them with a freshness and a vitality and a power. Lord I pray for each one who is here that you would keep us from compromise. That you would give us an increasing hunger and love for your word. Because you are great and you are glorious and we thank you for your compassion and your mercy. We recognize that we, though we may long for blamelessness, we still are imperfect. But we thank you that you have redeemed us. You have been gracious to us. You have put your spirit within us and you make our path straight. Watch over us. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.